A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. My guest this week is really sick of being called a female comic. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I've been traveling around the country, telling jokes, drinking white wine. Uh, so I have no idea how many kids I have out there. No clue. <laughs> and I don't keep an address for that reason, so they'll never find me. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so excited that my guest today is the hilarious stand-up comedian Beth Stelling. Over the past several years, Beth has appeared multiple times on Conan and Jimmy Kimmel Live. She was part of the original crew of comedians to land a half-hour special as part of Netflix's The Stand-Ups. Now she has her first-ever hour-long special on HBO Max, called Girl Daddy, and it is so good. I think you are going to really enjoy this conversation, so let's get to it. Here's me with the very funny Beth Stelling. So we're talking today, your special, as we talk, your special comes out tomorrow, yes. right? And when people hear this, it will already be out, and they've probably already watched it like six times and, and love it. <laughs> they um, and... press play at 12.01 PST. <laughs> But how are you feeling with, with the special uh, Girl Daddy about to drop on HBO Max? I am really excited. I think there's nerves, too. I think anytime you put yourself out there, and I think especially now it feels extra volatile. You know, even like comics are always like complaining about Twitter and stuff. And it's like, but we're all still on it. So it's like, that's like the direct <laughs> line. I mute people like crazy, but it's like, because <laughs> it's like the direct line to, to comics when, you know, this, <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to. Talk to us. <laughs> it's so funny. It's the opposite of stand-up comedy. Everybody thinks it's like, you know, free speech or whatever it is, like um, a conversation. It's not a conversation. It's a freaking monologue. I mean, like, I try to make mine, like, this special in particular, I do interact with the crowd more than I ever have. But it is so funny to think, like, that comics... People think that Twitter is a com like comics platform and it's like, no, <laughs> they're not used to your feedback at all. In yeah. fact, th they despise it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I got to see the the special already and, and really loved it. And you've just been one of my favorite comics for a long time. So it's just exciting to see, uh, you know, you have what's really your first hour long special coming out because you've done, you know, some shorter things and albums and stuff. But this is this is a big deal. Does it feel like a, a big deal to have this coming out if, even it in does. this weird moment? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much. That's makes me smile to hear. And it is a big deal. You know, for me personally, uh, it sounds like you're familiar with my style and that would be sometimes I need more room to stretch out for you to like get into my rhythm and, and my cadence, I guess. And with the hour it kind of flies by, you know, uh, and anytime I, I was very happy with my Netflix half hour and how it turned out. And I think, I think a half hour is plenty of time to, to get to know me or whatever, but there's different Olympic events in stand-up comedy. Well, actually, actually I haven't, <laughs> that just made me think of my old joke that I have in my first album, which of course I hate my first album and my second album. But I have a joke <laughs> where my mom's like, if, if, if stand-up comedy were an Olympic event, you would win gold in women's <laughs> stand-up comedy. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but great. it just, 
the reason I thought of that is because I, what I was just about to say is like, there's different Olympic events in stand-up comedy. It's the late night set. It's the feature set, which can, you know, if you're sometimes, if you're opening for someone famous, you usually do about 20 minutes before them. Or uh, if you're in a club, sometimes 25, maybe 30. And then there's the headlining set, which is 45 minutes to an hour. Although some comics have been known to go for freaking two, two three, three hours, four yeah. hours or eight <laughs> yeah. hours. But anyway, the hour special always seemed like so daunting, you know, because when you're first headlining, my goodness, you're, I mean, my first headlining spots, I'm like looking at the clock, like 44, 58, 59. <laughs> thank you. Good night. Uh, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, cause I would never want the shame of not reaching the 45 minutes uh, that I'm required to do. But look, sometimes people don't hit that if they're not ready to headline. Anyway, long answer short, I'm thrilled to have an hour special. And I feel like you really got it in under the wire, right? Cause when did you oh, film this? Oh my gosh. March 7th. Oh 2020. My God. You might be the last one, the last person who filmed this. It's very possible because down. that was a Saturday night. People film on different nights. You know, I'm sure somebody's filmed on a Monday or if they couldn't get a venue a Tuesday or whatever it is. But um, I don't know. It's weird in my head. I have certain nights that are comedy nights and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But like you're saying, I doubt anybody filmed, but maybe somebody had a Thursday taping or something. Yeah, you never know. But that is pretty crazy because that's just like a few days before everything went insane. Yeah, because the following weekend I was supposed to do some shows in St. Louis and it was down to the wire whether I was going to show up that night. At first it was like, yeah, I'll be there, of course. And then it was like news coming in from every, I'm texting with other comics around the country. I was texting with uh, Jamie Lee and I was texting with the manager of Portland Helium and being like, are you guys running your shows tonight? Cause I was at Philly Helium and he, and he was like, I'll keep you updated. We're having a, you know, a group meeting. And I was texting with Jamie and she's like, I don't know. I think I'm going to fly back. And that's in like, like the fear hit, which is like, I just landed. I just got to my hotel and I'm like, am I leaving? right away. Cause I'm the comic who like, I was ready for coronavirus. My first joke on my special on Netflix is like airports aren't that bad. It's hotels that are rugged for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. This job has me staying in a lot of hotels, Hampton Inns, Best Westerns, not to brag. <laughs> and when I'm in a hotel, I take the elevator up to my room, just like you guys. And <laughs> I'm statistically in that elevator with an old white man. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before he looks at me and he says something like, you're quiet. <laughs> Why are you so serious? Why don't you smile? And then I look at him and I say something like, <laughs> I have to shit. <laughs> I'm just like really focused. I'm the comic who has Clorox wipes to go that are yeah, in my suitcase. So I sanitize everything before I get into my hotel room. Services. What if I Clorox the sheets? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't wipe the sheets down. Yeah, I mean, even the night that you that you performed, it was sort of before we all realized how serious this was, but we were still all talking about it and thinking about it. So was it like, was it on your mind that even the taping of the special could get postponed or pushed or anything like that? I wasn't worried at all because it wasn't, it was like a little bit in the, um, Corona was, it's not that it was unknown or something, but it just didn't, no one was taking it seriously, especially our president. But this was before it even got to him. You know, I think he ignored it a couple weeks longer. Or maybe still you could argue, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And so I remember leaving stage after the second taping and people were kind of like my crowd, as you got to see, like I wanted it to feel very intimate and have them be around me. And uh, so as I'm leaving through the crowd, a guy like people were high-fiving me and stuff like that. And then a guy in the last row, like put his elbow out and I was like, Corona. And he was like, yeah. (laughs) So, so it was there, but it wasn't a threat. It didn't feel like a threat to the taping and it didn't think I had no clue what was to come. Yeah. So the title of your special Girl Daddy comes from a tweet that you put out in 2015, which I didn't realize until after I, I saw it because you tell the joke in the special as well. So I'll, I'll read the tweet uh, for people who don't who haven't heard it. You wrote, I've been called a female comic so many times, I'll probably only be able to answer to Girl Daddy when I have children. So that was obviously something you've been thinking about, uh, an idea you've been thinking about for a while. Yeah. Why, how did it become the, the title of your special? Well, I threw around all different types of ideas i wonder if i can pull up what i had oh your other your other title ideas? yeah okay some other ones <laughs> talks too much uh <laughs> witch cunt like witch hunt civil whore <laughs> keep up with me settle down uh you can say anything these days the problem is outside i think those are some of them that looks like truly over a year ago so that was probably just me riffing around and now i'm now i'm exposed and also like let's be real was i really gonna call it witch cunt no probably not were they gonna let you call it that is a better question (laughs) no i don't think so i don't think so (laughs) the first ever special on hbo max (laughs) witch cunt (laughs) yeah that that wasn't gonna happen civil whore just kind of made me laugh yeah that's pretty funny civil whore i can't believe no one's ever come up with that before or your new best friend um, yeah, you can't do like, it's too hard to promote your new best friend. Yeah. I like the, uh, I like, you can say anything now. Oh yeah. You can say anything these days. I like settle down cause girl daddy, it's similar in the, like, it's like settle down bitch, but it's also like, uh, settle down with kids and, and then also settle down. Don't oh, be so yeah. angry. Good double yeah. meaning. Anyway, but girl daddy was actually like the origin of, is my nephew. When he was a little boy, he was, he looked at, instead of my sister as a mom, he looked at her like the girl daddy because she's home with them and she's, <laughs> run, she runs a tight ship and it just, it's funny because that's, that's really what he wanted to call her in his head. But so that was the, he's in my first special too, where I say my, my nephew Reed, he's like, hmm. So the origin of it is obviously, I mean, or the joke of it is that you've been called a female comic so many times, and that's such a trope of having to deal with being called a female comic and all of that. I did read an interview with you from a long time ago where you said you thought it was actually easier being a female comic, and I was surprised to see that, and I was curious if you could expand on that at all. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That to me was almost like wishful thinking or projection, and I think I did that as like an armor because I got asked it all the time when I was coming up. And I didn't want women to be scared to start. And I wanted it to be not what it was. And I think it was better for me than it was for women who came before me, 100%, absolutely. Um, But it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, going back to how we opened with Twitter and everyone has an opinion and they can reach you and let you know you're wrong right away. And everyone's supposed to be perfect and not missed up. Well, I saw a tweet from a female comedian. (laughs) And she said something like, basically... She was not talking about me at all. Uh, In fact, she would never have seen this article because it's old. But I remembered saying it, like what you just brought up. And her tweet was along the lines of like, how dare these female comics disservice us? 
and make it seem like it's not hard. And you're basically the exact opposite of what I was doing. And to, you know, share, like I just shared with you my perspective on it. I was wanted it to be not hard. I wanted to not be asked about it. I wanted to feel like, no, it's easy. I love it. Yeah. But, but even if you didn't really feel that way. Yeah. And I think some, I think in some ways there was truth to it too. It was certainly not, it was more of an armor thing than it being not true at all. Because the truth was, in a lot of ways, there was an exodus of women comics when I started in Chicago. You know, the f- people flee to the coast. Kara Buller, Jocelyn Hughes, Brooke Van Poppelen, Faye Canali. Well, she stayed a little bit longer. I'm just trying to think of that last show. I went, Allison Lieber. Like, I went and saw them because I hadn't started yet. And it, they were called, I can't remember what they were called, but there was a collective. I think Spitfire is what they were called. And I went to go see it. Just, you know, like almost like case in the joint. Like, can I do this? And it was like their farewell show in Chicago. And that would have been probably 2007. So then, you know, we're told this very, you know, for whatever reason, we absorb this one at a one at a time mentality in so many ways. Like there can only be one female comic, maybe because there was usually only one female comic on the show. Because if there was two shows in the city, well, I was at one and Cameron Esposito was at the other. Mm-hmm. So the benefits that are stage time and the benefits that are you stand out on a lineup. So I wasn't lying. There are benefits to being a female comic when it came to that period of time in my life and being in Chicago. Were me and Cameron the only comics? Absolutely not. There was Faye Canale. There were the Putterboss sisters. There was all kinds of like, yeah, Kelly Howard. So it's like, it was beneficial in many ways, but I'm not saying it was the easiest thing either. Um, we de- I definitely put up with more shit than I would now. Mm-hmm. And hopefully more than female comics are having to put up with now. Yeah. With any, with any luck. Or with I think any so. Hope. Yeah. I think so. You know, when you were coming up in in Chicago, what was that scene like for you? And and what do you kind of remember about those first few shows that you did and and getting into it in those in those early days? My gosh, I mean, it was scary because I had come from theater. Oh, I wanted to say one more thing about that. It just came to my mind, like the pros and cons of what I was discussing in that interview. Meaning like, you know, if you, I've said this before too, but if you go to a show and there's five comics on them and one's a woman and like say one guy kills, he's like your favorite and one guy bombs and the other guy's fine and the other guy's fine and the woman does okay. You leave there thinking like, see, women just can't really hang. You don't leave there going, even though the odds are against all the men, if they, if you're adding their batting average, they would, men suck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, but you don't leave there thinking that. You leave there thinking, oh, that poor girl. That's the downside of not having more than, than one woman on a show. That is rough. But what I remember about starting, <laughs> I remember like my first open mic was down at Chicago and Halstead at, what was it called? On Green Street, 777 North Green Street. I remember the address, but now... It's so odd. I can't remember the name of the club and I don't even do drugs. So I don't have a good excuse for (laughs) for a bad memory um, other than trauma. (laughs) That was sad. Okay. But the owner of that club really was renting it out. He had his own little business thing going there. It was bringer shows. And I came from theater background and a lot of my friends moved to Chicago to pursue theater. So when I decided to peel off and to stand up. I had a lot of people who wanted to come see me do it. So I was like a bringer booker's dream and bringer for people listening. I think most people will know, but it's just, you don't get on stage unless you bring a certain amount of people. So of course he loved me because I was always bringing a lot of people and they freaking paid to be there. And then at a certain point you fleed as well. You, you went out to LA, right? Yeah, I did. I left after I was a new face of 2011 in Montreal. And, um, was there something that brought you to LA specifically, or you were just ready to, to go or or that it was really just new faces. I mean, I was about to quit. Honestly, I I was like, this isn't for me. I don't know. I was like, 
what would that have been four years in or something? And I just felt like, I don't know. I don't, I just remember being kind of depressed and down. And then my friend texted me at like midnight or something or whenever it went on the newsstands, the Chicago reader. And I was like the pick for best comic of Chicago in 2011. And I was like, Oh, maybe I'll keep going. <laughs> and so I, it was just like a little extra encouragement that I needed. And Robbie Pra was the scout for just for laughs. And I auditioned maybe year, year two and year three and didn't get it. And then year four, uh, I got it, but you know, it's no secret, but they want to know that you're making a move. New faces, they're meant to pick you because they think you might blow up, whether that's that year or five, seven years down the line when they can claim you. So it was kind of like, are you planning on moving? And I was like, should I? <laughs> so I was like, mm -hmm, yeah. And like you said, and, and I did new faces and I was the only comic from Chicago in, the, in that. And that was pretty intimidating because it was all New York and LA people. Our class was insanely talented. Allie Wong, Ron Funches, Drug Carmichael, Kevin Barnett, Dan St. Germain, Nick Turner. Did I say Sean O'Connor? I keep forgetting. We had an amazing class of people. And Dan Soder. Yeah, a bunch of those people have been on this podcast. Cool. How long after you went to LA did you get Conan, which ended up being your TV stand-up debut? Yeah, a little under a year. Right before my year anniversary in LA, um, I did Conan. Yeah, that's that must have been big deal at the time. <laughs> oh, it was a huge deal. Yeah, we, we I was really excited, and I don't know. I felt I think I felt good about it until, like, I left there feeling so good, and the crew was so kind, and I don't know. Looking back at it, of course, it's tough for me to watch. My style, I think, has changed so much. I just think I was like, you know, pretty slow and more deadpan and sort of dead. You know, like <laughs> on on purpose, or do you feel like that was just how naturally that's how just you performed? how it was coming out of me? You know, because whenever I started, I wasn't, I didn't have a plan. I don't watch stand up comedy, so I didn't have like idols that I was like, I want to be like this. Well, my idols were Robin Williams and Jim Carrey, and the movies I watched, or like Chris Rock. I would imitate yeah. him in high but school. You weren't, like, but you weren't really trying to be like them. No, yeah, I wasn't. No, yeah, yeah like yeah. obviously, <laughs> I don't think anyone would have, would have thought you were. <laughs> I'm like talking really quietly and they're like, who's your inspiration? I'm like, Robin Williams. <laughs> My next guest is a comedian who's making her television stand-up debut with us here tonight and his new album, Sweet Beth, will be available soon. Please welcome the very funny Beth Stelling. Thank you. I recently moved from Illinois to California, and I think that you would be hard-pressed to find anybody here tonight who's done something that brave. <laughs> but I did. And I just got some news from my sister back home. Uh, she and her boyfriend uh, accidentally planned a baby. <laughs> she was telling me she's only eating like 300 more calories a day to accommodate the life form growing inside her bod, which blows my mind because I consume at least a thousand more calories during a pregnancy scare. <laughs> 
do you feel like there is a persona that you have on stage that's different from who you are either then or now? No, I mean, I guess when I first started, I had more of a persona, but I didn't mean to. It's like, that's just what came out of me. It's almost like my nerves had me very calm and deadpan. That's just how I reacted. And then interpersonally, I was much more outgoing. And now it's a little bit the opposite. Um, I kind of, I remember the first time I can't remember the year exactly, maybe 2013 or 14, where I remember like a marked change in my stand-up. I think it was my, an evening with Beth Stelling is what it was called at Meltdown. Danielle Kramer was running it at the time and she was the producer. And when they offered it to me, I was so excited because that would have been my first long set in Los Angeles. And it was the first time I felt closest to my personality on stage because I was so comfortable at Meltdown. That's what it takes for me to have a really good time is comfortability and like I'm in a safe space. That's why I like, I sometimes avoid cities I think will hate me. So, I mean, you know, that's not totally true. I've, you know, I've been to Oklahoma City, but I think it's like, I don't know, I felt comfortable and I felt like myself. And and now I, I do feel like I'm, I don't feel like it's a persona on stage. I feel pretty close to my personality, but I will say I, I might be more shy off stage than I, than I ever have been. It's like a reversal that happened. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Cause I think of myself as a kid and I was like doing all those impressions and faces and performances. And, you know, I acted out in class and was in plays and theater and things. And I think doing stand up for so long, you have that little security blanket. That's the mic in front of you, between you and the people. It's like your protection. And I guess that's probably it. And then of course I'm tired. I'm doing an hour. So afterwards I'm not like, it's interesting. Some people have it in them to like go party or something. And I'm just like, or like, Hey, do you want to go hang and talk at the bar? I'm like, was that not enough for you? (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, Beth opens up about how her own experience with sexual assault helped inform some of the funniest jokes any comedian has told to date about the Me Too movement. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Going back to the special and, you know, the material in the special, you have a really great long piece about the Me Too movement, which I, I really enjoyed and thought was just really smart and interesting. And, you know, at the risk of getting too meta, I know because you talk about being on a podcast with a male comedian who wanted to kind of debate Me Too with you. And then that 
was never released. And I wasn't totally clear on what happened there. I don't know if you want to talk about that anymore, but yeah, it was actually like, you know, that's another one of those, I guess, you know, I don't think stand up should necessarily be your therapy, but in some ways, I guess it's how I might feel control over a time I felt powerless or something like that, you know, where I'm able to make it make sense in my head. And if I can make it funny, then I, I won or something, you know, like it doesn't, it didn't kill me because I can make it funny. So there's an aspect of that to it because truly that day I sobbed in my room. I was late to the show because of what happened. Very uncomfortable. And um, it's not even like I need to make that person, that comic who had me on the podcast, a monster. That's really not my goal because he's saying true things and he's not the only comic that's saying that joke. I heard it a bunch of times around LA and wherever I was. The, the joke being, uh-oh, you know, with the Me Too movement now, I, I'm going to have to have a woman sign paperwork before sex. You know, that that's, he's not the only one who's told that joke. So yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that a lot as well. Yeah. And so in the special for those listening, I, I responded to that joke, but on the, in real life on the podcast, I did bring that up because I had to watch that night after night. And to me, it bothered me. It, it was bothering me that to crowds full of people, he's saying it's scary now. And, and oh, I'm going to have to have a woman sign paperwork before sex because basically saying, cause, cause if not, she'll accuse me of rape. And it's like, what? You're just promoting that. Like, you're basically like women are liars. we got to be careful, men. And it's just, it bothered me. And so I brought that up and it didn't go well. I was uncomfortable for sure. Meaning like, I'm not, I, I think it's always funny before. Like, I don't like confrontation. It's like, who does? I mean, I guess there are people that what, thrive on it or something. So, I, so I'll take that sentence back, but yeah, I wasn't seeking confrontation. I was feeling like I wanted to share my opinion and be like, you realize what you're saying to crowds full of men, right? Like, and he got defensive too. And, you know, um, I was like, what are you, a BuzzFeed article? You know, and then I tried to just say how I felt about it, share my feelings, like what the joke made me think, you know, I'm not some sort of humorless cunt. That was another name for the special. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then afterwards kept me um, for, I was there for maybe, I don't want to exaggerate, I think three hours. If, if not, it was definitely two. It was like an hour on the pod and then an hour after sort of saying his side of the story and why he thinks that. And it was really traumatizing for me uh, having to listen to, to his side. So it doesn't mean that he's not, you know, able to share his side of things. I just shared mine and it didn't go well. And then he later texted, you know, I'm not going to release that because you look really uncomfortable. And I thought, was it just me? Yeah. Is that why you're not releasing? <laughs> yeah. So this is something, you know, as much as you're comfortable talking about it, but you, you know, have spoken out in the past about your own, you know, experience with sexual assault and you on social media, on stage. And this is all before, you know, the Me Too movement really took off in the way that we think about it now. Was that a hard decision to do that? And were you worried that it would kind of define you in a way that you that you didn't want it to? Very much. You know, I was worried I wouldn't work again. I my the way I have to look at it now, because it's such a big topic. I'm not saying you can't bring it up and we can't talk about it, but it's such a big topic because of everything that happened then and what followed. So for me, the way I have to look at it is it happened. I've worked through it and it's in the past because otherwise, but I guess for me, you know, the impetus was to protect the women in my community. It, 
you know, as you know, it wasn't a call out. It wasn't a let's drag this person. It was here's what's going on with me and what I'll be talking about in my stand up, even though I was asked by this person not to talk about it. Like everything in my life, I always put it in my stand up for better or for worse. I think in some ways I've learned lessons that not everything should be in your stand up and you have to protect yourself in some ways. Uh, but for me, the real, you know, I guess the thing that I had to struggle with most was how public it went. Because in general, at the time, like I mentioned, it was sort of to share with the community that I had around me. It had been brought to my attention that, you know, I, I, I wasn't the only one that this happened to. And so that's, for me, was the impetus. When I learned that I was the fourth person, I thought, oh, no, I just have to say something so people who know will know. And, you know, people who have seen me lately and when I talk about it on stage, they won't be surprised. I think I was in a place where I just needed to let that out. Um, what happened afterwards was it went so far out of my control, you know, and I've had so many bad interviews since, mostly with women, um, you know, asking me about it, not preparing me for it, um, saying when I get uncomfortable saying things like I remember I think it was Tracy Swartz from Chicago Tribune saying like, I'm just asking you about your very public post, you know? So those types of situations where you feel under fire, it makes you wish you never said anything at all. So when we ask so much of people who do share, it makes them wish they never shared at all. So it's such an interesting and big, like I mentioned, big topic. And there's this thing I know that happens where I've talked to other female comics who say that they then get called every time, you know, a male comedian gets in trouble and asked to speak for them. Yeah, I was I was at Just for Laughs Montreal with my mom. We were doing our podcast. We called your mom live uh, with Andrew Goldberg from from Big Mouth's mom, Linda and uh, Sophie Buttle, a great Canadian comics mom, Toby. And they asked me to do I forget it was for NPR. I'm trying to Elizabeth, I think, was the reporter's name. And we're talking and I'm having fun and, you know, talking about what JFL means to me, kind of like how you and I started. Like that was my first kind of break. And I was thrown into the mix with these New York and L.A. comics and that were very good and successful. And I met I remember meeting Harris Whittles, which was a big deal. And um, and it was a great experience. And I spoke on that. And then she it's all kind of a blur. Your mind sort of like probably protects yourself, but she said something like, you know, bringing up Louis CK and, um, whether or not I felt safe at the festival. And she's like, cause you know, you're, you know, you've been basically saying like hinting at that. I was public about my own intimate partner abuse and, you know, intimating that I would then have something to say about that. And, and my response was, do you think that when football players come off after a game, they're asked like, um, how do you feel about Paterno? You know, were you molested at any of the camps you were at? You know, and she's like, that's not what I'm saying. And it's like, okay, but are you asking the male comics what they're doing to make people feel safe in the green room? You know, so I guarantee you're not. Uh, Anyway, so I just wasn't prepared for that. And I guess that's maybe her job to throw me off like that. I, I don't know. But I've had a series of interviews like that where it's tough to have these conversations. And for a long time, it was really tough for me to have the conversations because I was so speaking of triggered, you know, it's funny because I don't really identify with a lot of the rape culture terms. I think probably it's like in my own mind because I don't want to be associated with it. You want it to go away. You don't want it to be your only thing um, at all. Who would, you know, I'm a stand-up comic. I get plenty of attention on my own. <laughs> well, I think that you, I mean, going back to the special, I think that you are able to really work through a lot of this stuff in such an interesting and, and really funny way. And so that's kind of a way to, to move past it as well and, and turn it into something that 
is entertains people, but also really makes, I think will make people think who watch the special. So, well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I I appreciate that. Let's move on to other topics now though. Um, You mentioned, you know, we were talking about how you, the special filming it, you know, under the wire and, and really, you know, this could be one of the last live specials that comes out for a while. I mean, I know there's some, some others sort of that have already been taped, but how have, how have you been sort of dealing with this insane world of stand up during quarantine and zoom shows and drive-in shows and, and are you engaging with that stuff at all? Or are you kind of waiting until you can get back on stage or how do you feel about it? Yeah, I've been avoiding shows at all costs. I mean, I was ready for a break because I just filmed this. And so, so I wanted to take a break and when it felt like the world also had, not the world, but other comics were basically (laughs) told they have to take a break too. I was like, wee. You know, it's like a relief because we're all driven by each other. You know, you see a comic out five times a week. You're like, oh, I got to get going. You know, so there there are times where you're just like, I should be working harder because you see somebody else, another mm-hmm. comic. Yeah, um, there's a lot working of competition. So yeah. Um, so I, I was so relieved that I wanted to take a break after getting this hour done. And then everybody else had to as well. And then, you know, cut to week one and comics were like, I bought a green screen. Yeah. And we're like, Oh <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought we were supposed to rest. Yeah. <laughs> so that was annoying to me, but only in that sort of driven way where it's like, come on guys, let's be lazy together. <laughs> but it's not the same at all. I've done, I did a couple shows for the squars cause I love them so much and they create a really honestly, I mean, I've said it a couple times, but like a safe space for me, I feel comfortable to be myself and around them and, so I've done that, a fundraiser for their school, and it made me nervous. And I was just standing right here. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to do a digital show. I just think it's just not the same. And I don't want to put people at risk. I mean, obviously, I don't need to shit on other comics that are out there touring but and be, like, mad at them. But it's hard not to feel like, yeah, I mean, you're ruining it for all of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, cool the, for you. The longer but, you keep doing this, the, yeah, the longer it's going to cool be before you Cool for you that you you're get... out there. But I guess I'm going to be in here longer. Yeah. And who knows, like, how true that is. I mean, you know, I'm sure you saw the news stories of those comics going to Houston and getting coronavirus. So, I don't know. I personally, I've written a few new jokes. But I, if you know any comics, it's like one line can give us a high for like a day or two. I wrote a new joke. <laughs> Do you want to share one of your new jokes? Sure. In fifth and sixth grade, I had an older babysitter. And I, I had a crush on him. And I actually ran into him recently. And he asked me out. And I thought, if you didn't want me then, you can't have me now. <laughs> that, actually, my pedophile joke got cut from my special. Oh, really? Which one's that? You have to be careful with pedophilia because you can catch it just by touching a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I've, I've seen you do that one. Yeah. That's a good one. Unless you've been touched. Uh, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people like to laugh, at, laugh about it, but. If you, without stand-up going on, you obviously, you know, you have this uh, the podcast that you mentioned that you're doing with your mom. What else are you, are you working on? I heard somewhere that you are maybe developing a, a show for yourself. Yeah, I've been developing a show. I guess, I, like, you never want to talk about, I don't know, what, what's a good example? I guess if you're a bad cook, that would be a good example. Nothing's real. You know, nothing feels real. So until it's real, you don't really want to talk about it. But I've, I have been developing a show with Sharon Horgan. And that's yeah, a dark family comedy and uh, based around around my life and my family in Dayton, Ohio. So that's something I'm working on. And then I just do my usual, like, I guess the last show I wrote on in the fall was season three of The Last OG, but I've been doing 
punch up for movies in quarantine. So I'm thankful that I, you know, diversified my talents <laughs> so that I wasn't fully reliant on stand-up comedy because it's a tough time for comics right now. And I, I feel for a lot of them. I saw you listed your in your credits, uh, Good Boys. Yeah. Um, is that something, was that a punch-up job? Yeah, I was the on-set punch-up writer with, with, uh, with John Phillips. And uh, what's it like being an onset punch up writer? It's very fun. I, I think it depends, of course, on what job you do. I've talked to some other comics who have done onset punch up where I guess I should say it depends on the project and the director, how much they want from you or need from you. Because uh, I've heard in some cases, which is not my case, you might be sitting there all day and only asked for like one or two lines that aren't working or something. But for me, we were just kind of like more involved. You know, there's some changes made throughout and we were working with good voices it stars three young boys who are around, you know, 11, 12, 13 ish range. I think they were playing 11. I love how I don't remember. Um, <laughs> but so we were just kind of thinking of things on the fly, how to make it better. If basically it's the same thing that I did for crashing after we wrote the season. And then I was mm. just on set while filming season oh, one and okay, two. Yeah. So if something's not working or you just need to make an adjustment, you're there to riff or bounce bits or come up with something different or rewrite. So yeah. Crashing is was really just one of my favorite shows of the past few years. As I, I told Pete Holmes this when he was on the podcast, just that it felt like a show that was made for me just because I'm a comedy nerd and I like this stuff and like seeing all the, you know, behind the scenes world of, of stand up comics. What was your experience like on that show? And were there any stories from your own life that that ended up in the show? Because I know that's how a lot of it was was written. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of some specifics of things that went in from my life. I mean, it's hard to pick them out because I guess when you're in the room so long, you know, you, you're just riffing and sharing stories for months. And I'm not saying this is what you're asking me to do, but like what you, like you just sort of meld in with the group. So there are sometimes like there are jokes, of course, from good boys where I'm like, oh, I know that's mine. But typically you're just there riffing. You want to be in the moment and be funny. So and you don't want to be the person that's like writing down like, oh, well, that was my oh, joke yeah, and I'm going to yeah. remember it. You know, it wouldn't be bad if you did that necessarily. But I think I just get into the collaborative process and then I kind of forget what I added and what I didn't. And it all melds together and each person's different experience melds together. But like as comics, the one thing we have in common often is the clubs we're working that are run by the same people that we're all meeting so it's a unique experience and it's also a shared experience on the road oftentimes. I guess one in particular was at that NACA moment where the student says, can I get a picture? And uh, you're like, oh, sure. And you think that they want a picture with you and they hand you their phone or their camera. So you take it of them and their <laughs> friends and you're like, all right. <laughs> I think that wasn't me, but I don't know. I ha it's been so long. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember right now. Um, Another one that, that was a little while ago, but that I wanted to ask you about is um, you wrote on I Love You, America with uh, Sarah Silverman, mm -hmm. um, her show for Hulu, which I, I really enjoyed as well and was really dis disappointed to, to see it end so prematurely. I agree. What was it like working on that show? Sarah's brilliant. She's one of my favorite comics, and I'm lucky that I've become friends with her. I, I, I think of her like a sister. Yeah, she's just someone I look up to and love very much. So getting to be there with her and the way I look at it in my mind, the way I treat it is just I want to support my friend and make her the funniest she can be. She's already funnier on her own. So, you know, of course, we have the writing staff and everyone. I have to say, I don't really want to take much credit because I left Good Boys and came and wrote on I Love You, America. And I was just two days a week. The majority of the writing was done by the staff and they were excellent. And so if anything... I came in for what I guess I'm, you know, sought after for, which is just punch up, <laughs> just come in and punch it up. 
But so it was, it was an amazing experience. I like watching her. And I think sometimes, I mean, I like watching her as a stand-up for many reasons. One being that she's also a great actress and it's a good reminder that it's a show and people have paid to come see you. And so you perform your jokes how they're meant to be. Uh, not just like what I sometimes fall into, which is, oh, you guys know this one, you know, yeah. <laughs> it should be like, here it is. Like it's the first time I'm telling you. And I love Speck of Dust. It's one of my favorite um, specialists of all time. And um, yeah, I think I wish the show were happening right now, quite frankly. I learned a lot too. I mean, it's a way to kind of stay active and know what's going on. But yeah, I really am bummed that the show, I don't think they gave it what it deserved. Not Hulu. at all, not at all. Yeah. You mentioned before that you didn't really watch stand-up comedy before you started stand-up comedy, but do you watch it more now? I mean, you watch, you see people on the road. Are there, are there people, whether it's Sarah or others, who you really kind of looked up to early on when you were starting? Right. I didn't really watch stand-up, like you said. I do remember loving whatever it would have been around 07 or 06, whatever that Dane Cook album was, Shit on the Coast. That was, that was huge. Yeah. So that was really the first time I'm like listening to a comic and thinking, whoa, like this person is selling out an arena. So that that was my, I don't know, insert whoever your big comic was of your generation. To think that that was possible through comedy was pretty amazing. I did see Dave Chappelle when he came to Miami University when I was there. Um, I wasn't a Chappelle show fan, but I think it was just more because I didn't have a TV. <laughs> no one's really watching a ton of TV in college. Yeah, really, I, I just don't think. wasn't. I think maybe now they are on their laptops. But yeah, so I went and saw him. But it's, it's really tough to remember anything from it. I remember probably having a good time. And then I guess people I sort of grew to start sort of idolize or like would be like Tignataro, Maria Bamford, Wanda Sykes. I was a fan of her acting because I was watching movies, you know, that she was in coming up down to earth and stuff. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> but I'm trying to think of now. I really loved Ray Romano's special. To me, I watched that and I thought, uh, he never lost it. The most you recent know? one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. Sometimes if you're a comic, you're just always a comic. Yeah. And he's, yeah, the stuff about his teenage kids is just killer. Yeah. I also never, I watched Richard Pryor for the first time like two weeks ago. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What'd you think? I watched live in concert from 79 in Long Beach. And um, yeah, I was, I was blown away. I, it made me laugh. And particularly, I love how he like, I guess is the word pers- personifies or personification of animals and objects and things. Or yeah, would that be anthropomorphism? Oh, maybe, Either way, yeah. the little monologues he creates for these characters or the, whatever you want to call it is so fascinating to me. I love how, you know, just from news and history, how he has a dark past and there is trauma there and he's hasn't always acted the best. But when you watch the special, I love it just because he was able to you know, make it into comedy. So we're laughing about a heart attack and we're laughing about a domestic dispute. And, you know, I don't know all the details on that story, so I can't speak to it fully. But to me, it felt like what I like to do, which is making dark things funny. Yeah, you know, he lost his two spider monkeys. Spoiler alert. Sorry, everyone. And <laughs> um, he made that funny, you know, these two animals that he loved. So, And also he has, you know, for rape jokes being so controversial uh, to so many people and taboo and, you know, stirring things up, he has one. And it made me laugh. And I, I think the main reason is because it wasn't from the perspective of a rapist. <laughs> I think so many jokes today are like, she was sleeping and I fucked her. And his was like 
a comparison to animals like humping each other. And he calls it getting hooked up in the middle of the street, like, which way are we going? Which way are we going? <laughs> and basically he's saying, like, wouldn't that be nice if a woman's pussy could do that? Just snap on a dick that's raping her and be like, hey, you're coming with me. Like, yeah, that should really be a feature of the around. vagina. Yeah. And so I don't know. Everything's possible. <laughs> Looking back on on all of your time when you used to be able to tour and could be either this could be a story from touring or from writers' rooms. Is there a time that you that you remember just laughing really hard at something that happened either you know in the in the green room or in a writers' room or or something that that stands out? I'm trying to think of a time I almost like barfed laughing. <laughs> I guess it would be like on the back of the camera op truck shooting Good Boys in Vancouver two summers ago, Daryl one of the camera ops and John Phillips and me on the back of the truck, you know, we wrap and everybody's packing up and they had some sangria on the truck and we all poured a glass after a a long day. And we just started quoting, (laughs) we just started quoting lines from old school, like Will Ferrell and what is it? Sean, Scott William, uh, Sean, Sean William Scott, Scott. Yeah. Sean William Scott, like the scene where he gets a dart in his neck, and so we're <laughs> we're just quoting it line for line. And I mean, I I can't explain how hard it was making all of us <laughs> laugh. I was crying tears. So yeah, that's not not the best story, especially because it's so funny. Like I think so many people who aren't comics, you know, when you're a kid, that's how you get your laughs is quoting movies. You know, you're not coming up with your original material. So it's just so funny after a long day of essentially creating original material. We're making ourselves laugh the way we used to in high school by quoting other funny professional people. Just by remembering a movie that came out like 15 years ago. (laughs) Yes. So that that was a good memory. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for doing this and congrats on the special. It's really wonderful. And I'm so glad that you got to film it and get it out there. Thank you. And yeah, I hope everyone really enjoys it. I hope so too. Don't tell me if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again to Beth Stelling for being my guest on today's show and speaking so honestly about everything that has led to this moment in her life and career. You can stream her special Girl Daddy right now on HBO Max. Her podcast, We Called Your Mom, is also available now wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please help us out by giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 